Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to the final episode of Climbing Consulting for 2021. It has been a great year for the show, had some fantastic guests on this year really excited to see what 2022 has in store. But before we get there, I wanted to end this year with a brilliant guest and someone who I know you're going to love listening to. In this conversation, I speak with Rob Chapman, the founder and CEO of Founders Intelligence, the entrepreneur-powered consultancy that helps clients to identify and seize the next billion-pound opportunity that is emerging in their industry. Having begun his career in the startup world, Rob moved into consulting with PwC, wanting to build those core skills that many young professionals want to learn. But it was his early days in startups that had ignited a passion in Rob, and a chance meeting with one of his now business partners led to the idea of a consultancy that helped large corporates grow through entrepreneurial growth. And it was this idea that led to Founders Intelligence and Rob 
launching the business with his co-founders, Brent Hoberman and Henry Lane Fox at just 26. In this conversation, Rob and I explore a whole range of fascinating topics critical to the founder's intelligence journey and to Rob's own journey as a leader, including why mentorship is so critical for career success and how mentors have played a vital role in Rob's journey. The powerful career advice that helped Rob and his leadership team take founder's intelligence from a startup to a global team approaching 50 people and how you can use that same advice to accelerate your own career. And we talk about the exciting news of their recent acquisition by Accenture and find out how, by partnering with Accenture, Founders Intelligence will be able to accelerate its mission and help even more corporates grow through entrepreneurial growth. Whether you are looking to grow your career through mentorship and you're looking to find mentors and want advice on how to do it, or maybe you're looking to build your consultancy itself and are interested to find out how entrepreneurial growth can help you do that, I know that you are going to get a ton from this conversation. So with the intro over, all that's left to say is thank you for listening all this year. I hope you have a lovely Christmas and please enjoy today's conversation with Rob Chapman. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for having me. Well, I think this has been a long time in the making, and I know the exciting news for yourself and Founders Intelligence that happened this week is, is something we've had to, I guess, be mindful of in, in when we've scheduled it. But I'm really pleased that we've got this in before I go off on paternity in the same week as your great news. And so why don't we start there? And maybe for my listeners' benefit, could you give a bit of background on, on who you are, how you've got to where you are today, and exactly what that news was? Great. So maybe starting with the great news is the company that I have been building over the last eight and a half years, Founders Intelligence, was acquired this week by Accenture. And that's really incredible for us from the pace of growth that we're going to be able to deliver for the company and the impact we're going to be able to deliver for our clients. And so it's been obviously a huge decision for us as a independent and very entrepreneurial company to then decide that we want to grow our company as part of something bigger. So I'm sure we'll end up talking about that decision and, and how we made it and, uh, and and why Accenture as well. Uh, and we've been very thoughtful about that. But maybe just some background for your listeners on on me. So, so I'm Rob Chapman. I run Founders Intelligence. We're a consultancy focused on helping clients deliver entrepreneurial growth, which means to us growing by doing anything new. So we compare it to replicative growth where you repeat what you're doing already. You open more shops, more countries, more business units, you know, this sort of thing. You know, we are looking at how you explore the world of what you're not doing. And the way we do that is by thinking about how an entrepreneur might approach the same problem and how entrepreneurs are approaching the problem. So we look at the startups that have been started in an industry of a client. We analyze what they're doing, why they're doing it, what that means for the future of the industry. And we speak to those those founders and we think about what they might do together with you as a client, if that's the the right approach. And then we help our clients to deliver that. So whatever we conclude from that strategic process, we help them think about how to get it into market. As any entrepreneurs, we're very impact-driven and about getting things into market. So that's what we do. It's a company that I helped set up eight and a half years ago, and we are 47 people across three markets. We're in the UK, Germany, and uh, Brazil. And yeah, we've been celebrating because um, we're really excited about the the journey ahead now. 
Fantastic, Rob. Well, I think a great intro and, and also for our listeners, full disclosure, we also work together. So Founders Intelligence are a client of Create Engages. But I'd love to you know, dive in because obviously we've got to know each other really well, got to know your team. I think a lot of what you said there around the sort of innovation and your focus, I mean, I'm still in awe of many of the jobs your team had before joining. And if for no other reason, then I don't understand what half of them did. And I, I always I always remember the first workshop we did together where I just I had to get out Google for quite a few of the uh, the terms. But, you know, it's brilliant what you do and obviously seeing that impact with clients. And I, I think maybe to your point, why don't we start with, you know, the Accenture news and, you know, you mentioned around people listening might be interested to understand the journey you went on. And obviously, your business is very successful. You're in a really hot space in innovation. You do great work. I suspect at the point where you thought, actually, we want to partner with someone to accelerate that growth, you would have had a few options or, or some suitors. Can you explain a bit about actually the journey you went on and, and how ultimately you decided that Accenture was the the right partner and parent for that? Yeah. So you're right, we're on you know real roll. November this month actually is our record ever revenue month. We we've come very strongly out of COVID. As you can imagine, you know, everyone stopped thinking about growth and being entrepreneurial for the sort of three months straight after COVID, and then suddenly thought, wow, like we really have to think much more creatively about our future. Now we've seen how tech businesses have been able to grow through the pandemic and how much of our businesses dependent on tech and how much our clients are expecting from us. And so, you know, the phone went kind of crazy in September last year and um, we've been sort of sold out since since the autumn. And really the proper conversation around whether we're best staying independent for the next phase of growth started early this year around if we want to, being as ambitious as we are, we want to be growing our business at, at multiples of the current growth rather than sort of incrementally each year. And there are lots of ways to do that. You either invest much more heavily in what you do already and building your own growth and marketing and sales capabilities, or we thought about you know, the option of acquiring and, and becoming the acquirer ourselves and looking at, and we had some conversations with, with other companies that seemed synergistic. But actually it became really clear to us that so much of what makes us unique is not reinventing the sort of rails of consulting. Right, the stuff we really enjoy and that we're really brilliant at, and that we want to scale, we can do as part of something bigger. And actually, it lets us focus on those things that make us unique, rather than on reinventing stuff that people have done many times over. And that—that's a realization I had about halfway through the company that we were trying to reinvent too much. And every year, we think again about you know why are we building that from scratch when someone's probably invented it already? Yeah, you know, like why are we trying to work out how to do marketing when there are good people who know how to do that very well, hence why we're working with you. And when we came to that conclusion that actually we should explore properly whether one of these larger organizations might be a better place for us, we then, being good consultants, came up with some some clear criteria for what we're really looking for. And those were really the, A, they need to love us for us. You know, we're not looking, weren't looking for anyone who wanted to roll us into something pre-existing or thought we could help them be the front end. We always got that pitch. Oh, you, you know, you could be the front end for what we're trying to sell with your strategy work. Then we could, you know, no way that turns us into a sales house for something that we don't know about. So that was the first thing If they have to really love us for what we do and be excited about what we do. Secondly, that has to be strategic to their plans. So i.e., there's already investment focus on our area on entrepreneurial growth, or at least growth through innovation. And 
Then thirdly, it needs to protect and, and more than protect, actually increase our talent proposition. As with any consultancy, you know, our talent proposition is everything. It's the lifeblood of the company. And we need to have a partner for growth who really believes in that, thinks about it creatively and, and hard. And, and we, we had a really, really rigorous process. Again, <laughs> being, being consultants, we, we, we drank our own medicine and we spoke to more or less everybody. You know, we had 16 deep conversations and we ended up, you know, Accenture head and shoulders over any other option. And really, you know, they've been absolutely fantastic through the, the whole process in surprising us almost at every turn about how thoughtful they were about each of those three things, about how much they, really tried to understand our business and what made it unique and what it needs to scale. And especially around the talent proposition, because, you know, as one of the world's most acquisitive companies, they really understand what you can, can't, should and shouldn't do with a people business as you go through this really important and exciting transition. And then thirdly, obviously the strategic point, it's amazing how much, you know, they had come to similar conclusions about the growth they wanted to see. And so, you know, really they, like I said, surprised and delighted us at each stage. And, and um, you know, it's been a real pleasure working with them so far. And 36 hours into our, our new relationship, you know, it's been a fantastic 36 hours. You know, they really have, have stuck to their principles on on how they want to to welcome us into their, their group. And, um, yeah, we're excited for what's ahead. Fantastic, Robert. I think really, I mean, firstly, great to hear the 36 hours so far, so good. And I think that process, and, and like you say, being good consultants actually were very structured about this. And, and a lot of my listeners either are building consulting firms, maybe or maybe not to sell, or to your point, looking to be the other side as the acquirer. I, you mentioned Accenture were head and shoulders above the rest. And I just, I'm interested, what was it that they did differently in those maybe initial meetings that made you go, wow, we're really interested in Accenture? And and if it wasn't purely the initial meeting, was it there were sort of rounds of, you know, almost, is it Dutch voting where you, you drop the loser and you go to the next five? It's what you always used to do at university. But um, how did that process work? Was it just clear from the off or was this sort of something that you went through those iterations? And if it was, what really was it that made them go, made you go, wow, this is the partner? Yeah, well, I think the most important thing and, and you know, for anyone who goes through this process Thinking about what it is that really makes our business unique. You, know, you have to know yourself, right? Before you can know what good looks like in a, in a partner that's going to be a good home for the business. And so we thought a lot about, you know, what is it that our clients love about us? What is it that our people love about us? We then went and asked all our people, what is it that you love about working here? So we know really, you know, when you get down to it, we did some workshops to say, well, what do we really need to deliver for you to make this the best place to work and deliver on all your dreams? And then, it was using that sort of self-knowledge to look at what it is that that each of the potential partners, acquirers were, were talking about at each stage that helped us say, well, actually, these are the best conversations and, you know, these are the ones we want to take forward. And then, and the other side is just, is people, right? The, again, the, the, the people we are working with at Accenture are just fantastic. You know, they really put energy, enthusiasm and, brains into into and they were coming to us with ideas of what you know how we could better run and grow our company throughout the process as they learn more and so you know you just at the end of the day it's all about people and we found people we wanted to work with and are excited to work with throughout and you know it's not to say that there aren't many other wonderful people that we met through the process you know at lots of other consultancies but um 
you know, we found the right home for us. And, uh, and actually the lovely thing is I've had emails from pretty much every single company that we work, we've talked through through that process in the last 36 hours, you know, saying lovely things and congratulating us. And, you know, so it's, it's been really lovely. No, fantastic, Rob. So something you just touched on a bit earlier, Rob, around actually how business has been going so well for yourselves. And it's something I'd be really interested to touch on because obviously through our work, you know, we've got to know a bit more about your approach with clients, but also in, internally. And something we've talked about before is how tech selling is very different from consulting selling. And obviously, to grow a successful consulting business, you have to sell. And it's something you and your team have obviously done very well. But I'd love to get your take on actually how those differ and why you follow that tech-focused approach. Because I think that's going to unlock something for a lot of our listeners where, you know, I hear people all the time say, we're struggling to sell, we're struggling to, to grow. Actually, how do you follow a different approach that really works for yourselves and has, you know, given you the bumper month that you've just had? <laughs> so a blessing, I think, on our business, it may have been a curse, I'm not sure, I don't have the alternative reality, was that, you know, when I started this, you know, I was 26, I had been two years in PwC and learned a lot about how to be a junior analyst, but absolutely nothing about how to sell consulting. And I partnered up with two people to, to start the business. So a chap called Brent Hoberman, who founded lastminute.com and made.com. So, you know, very successful, well-known British tech entrepreneur uh, and extremely well-connected. And then Henry Lane Fox, who'd been the head of product and first employee of lastminute.com. And again, a really, really successful, thoughtful tech investor. And it meant that I learned selling from, from them rather than from people who've been doing it in consulting all the, all, all the time. And almost my journey to selling the sorts of projects we do now, the sort of deep, consultative, thoughtful sell sort of with clients working out together what, what the problem is, let alone what the, the approach to solving it is that kind of came organically from us sort of thinking about how to do it well off the back of what, what Henry and Brent are brilliant at, which is the sort of the really challenging, provocative conversations around where the world is going and being able to say truthfully what they think. You know, I think consultants who've grown up in consultancy can, not all clearly, many brilliant, brilliant ones who do, but like it's, 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 it's a hard, it's always hard. Whereas for these two tech entrepreneurs who don't have anything to lose because they're not consultants, you know, they're, sometimes, they're tough at times for me when I was a consultant, they were like, wow, that's quite a bold statement to make to a client. But really that's the sort of, you know, that being truthful and being unafraid to lose a client because you're, you're saying something that's, that they might not like and they might say, Hey, look, you know, you're not for us. So I think that was just the, the lesson for me of, you know, don't think too much about what they want to hear and think a lot about what you really think and really believe. And don't be afraid to stay, say stuff that's slightly risky, you know, and, and, and long-term and, and might not be true. Have you thought about this completely crazy possible future reality that they probably haven't and probably don't believe in, but it's a fun intellectual exercise to then talk through it together. So I think that's sort of what they, they injected early on. And then slowly I've had to learn the other bit, <laughs> the technical bit of really, you know, how you, how you go through a, a good consultative sales process where you're sort of, you know, understanding deeply the, the client and building a relationship. I'm intrigued how you, having now learnt both, balance that. Because to your point, there's something quite different and striking about that really provocative, frankly, do you know that you could be the next blockbusters if you don't do this? I guess tempered with, to your point, some of the consultative sale and 
actually that structuring with clients. How do you now balance that to give you something that kind of works for both? Because I guess the risk if you go too bold is you're not anyone's cup of tea. But if you go to the other way, you're, you know, you're just like everyone else. How, how do you strike that balance? Well, well, the first thing actually I pick up on your question is I'd never say to someone that they're going to be the next blockbuster. I think you can never sell through negativity. It's always through optimism about where the opportunity is. So for us, we're talking about the fact there's going to be lots of growth in your industry. And look, here are some of the, the, the areas or the companies that are going to grow and could be the next billion dollar company. And they might not be, right? They might, you know, that's the venture capital model. They might not be at all, but really, do you want to participate in that growth? Like, do you know where your next billion dollar company is coming from and how are you going to get there? And so the sort of being provocative is not being kind of rude or challenging or trying to (laughs) tell them that they're not brilliant companies because by definition, all these, the, you know, the large companies we work with, the ITVs and Facebooks and VPs of the world are phenomenally successful companies at what they do. And our question to them is, you know, do you know what you're going to do next? Like, what is the next thing? And so that's where we're provocative around, you know, what actually, how your industry might grow and whether you're going to participate in that growth or not. So it's a very, it has to be a very positive thing. And, you know, I guess as all consultant salespeople will know, you know, it's all about building personal relationships and, you know, and actually working together on things. And if you, if you ever feel like you're working against them, you're being, what I really learned from Brent Henry is about being truthful about what you really think and not being overly, thinking overly hard about what the client thinks and what they want us to think. And I, I really like your point. I guess it talks back to, like you said, the difference between entrepreneurial and, and rep, you know, replicable growth of actually you're, you're fishing in a new pond, not simply trying to dig deeper into the same pond. And I guess then to your point, if it is that, you know, that optimistic and that positive slant, which I really like, to that values fit point, is, is it just being honest? If a client thinks actually the world's going left and, and you think it's going right, just being open about that in that sales process and, and seeing if you come together, is that how you would sort of navigate that conversation? Because I guess when you are dealing in that, what the world could look like in the optimistic side, there's probably quite a few horses in the race. And how do you temper that more to just, I guess, not blindly, and I'm not saying you do, but someone might blindly follow the client because they're going to pay versus saying, actually, look, that's not going to do it. This is where the next opportunity is. I know it won't be that simplistic, but I'm just trying to get for our listeners sort of harness how you'd navigate that. Probably the answer is you don't, right? You don't try and come to any conclusions because when you're talking about the future, there aren't any. There are only really opinions. And then there's only really, you can only put rigor around how you come to those opinions. And so, you know, as long as you can put together a plausible, logical rationale for why you believe what you believe, then you know theirs could be perfectly valid in exactly the opposite direction. So again, you're you're never trying to win an argument in this. You're trying to open minds to other possible futures that they might not have considered. And you know the answer is well, we need to do some really deep, rigorous thinking at, at this point to to say well, actually, are you betting in the right areas and are you exposed to the right types of growth? And you know, that ultimately is then what we what we sell as, a, as an organization. And so once you've got to that point where you're having a really interesting, deep intellectual conversation, then, you know, we know that that's what our clients are looking for in order to then think about whether we might be the right people to take that forward as a proper piece of work. So yeah, really you're trying to, you're trying to hook, enjoy a conversation. I suppose that's the main thing. If you're, if, if people are enjoying speaking to you, enjoying working with you and really the the conversation there is a sort of microcosm of what working with you over a extended period of time is going to be like, then you're probably into a sort of a good, 
conversation. Definitely. So I want to pick up on when you mentioned around your co-founders, and I, I'm going to come on to that shortly because I think there's a bit more context there that'll be interesting for our listeners and, and definitely some learnings about how you met Brent and Henry and, and the journey there. But I just, before we move on to that side, sort of probably my last question around building a successful consulting business. Um, and it was something, you know, I know we caught up sort of ahead of this and just something you said that just intrigued me, Rob, because it, if I'm honest, it felt quite in- counterintuitive. And so I'm always interested when, when people have sort of slightly counterintuitive perspectives, which is you said, look, if you're trying to build a business to exit a business, you're going to build a shit business. And I'm really interested in that because I think there's a lot of people going into business at the moment. There's a lot of hype in terms of, you know, grow, launch, IPO, et cetera. Actually, could you explain and elaborate a bit more on on what that statement means to you and and how that informed and informs your approach as you're building Founders Intelligence? It's a really good question because we've thought about a lot, you know, how we build a really high quality business. And if you're thinking about what an acquirer might want and what your exit looks like, you're second guessing what makes a great business. And, you know, we really focused on three things. We focused on the differentiation. So what is it that really makes our business great for our people and great for our clients? And then the quality. So how do we make sure that we deliver brilliant work every time? And that probably for the first four years was all we've thought about, about what is it that's really different. But we sort of probably forgot the scalability bit, the last bit of like, how do you do that at more scale than eight people where you're essentially running a big project team and make it work in, you know, different geographies? And, you know, how do you think about scalability? And if you focus on that and building a brilliant business, then people are going to be interested in whether they can help with that scalability bit. And if you focus on what do you think the next thing that someone might want is going to be, then I think you just don't build a very happy business. And that's, you know, I think probably the thing I'm most proud of is that we have a very happy business that I really enjoy working in. And, you know, that's what you want. That was what makes a a good business. And that's really what, at the end of the day, potential acquirers are going to be interested in is businesses that look happy and strong and healthy and growing fast. And, you know, we haven't exited the business. We've entered something new. We're, we're all going in it together to build founders intelligence to be many multiples bigger in our new home. So, you know, exit is entirely the wrong way to think. I think that gives us everything I was keen to cover on the sort of business side. And I'm really interested to move to something that I think something I haven't talked with too many people about, but I know it's a really powerful topic when I do, which is around mentorship, because I know it's been a huge part of your journey. And and you mentioned a bit earlier, Rob, around how you started Founders Intelligence and that you started with Brent and Henry. And maybe to open this up, can you just share the story of actually how you met them and, and how that came about? Because I think it's a really interesting segue into that conversation around mentorship. Yeah, of course. So I, I started my career in a startup, first of all. So I was in a purely by chance. I mean, I'm always interested in the startup world, but the actual opportunity to to join one for a, a short period of time was quite fortunate, right place in the right time. And um, and I did six months doing their growth and marketing. And, um, and then I was always planning to start in consultancy, right? I wanted to get a sort of broad exposure, all the sort of normal things that every grad says about why they want to be in consultancy was true with me. Um, and so I joined the PwC strategy team and was doing the was doing sort of about 50% commercial due diligence, 50% sort of growth strategy, or strategy, um, corporate strategy. And really, you know, I think you don't appreciate those early years until a lot later. It's quite hard to appreciate them in the early years. Certainly I didn't. 
but I was really thinking about like, how do I get back into the the tech world? And really, I decided to go on secondment. So I went to EE and was part of the 4G Spectrum auction. And my boss there, a chap called Kip Meek, uh, who was really wonderful, he, at the end of my secondment, you know, took me for a sort of coffee and said, well, what are you trying to do with your career? And, um, and he said, well, look, you know, my, if you really want to get back into tech long term, then you should meet Brent, who is one of the, the best entrepreneurs you could meet. And so, you know, go and go and meet him. And he made a very kind introduction to Brent. And, you know, really, I guess my, my feeling at the time at PwC is a wonderful company and people as it, as it is was that we didn't have enough interesting things to say about the future. So from the startup I'd worked in, from the obsession I had with reading venture capitalist blogs, you know, all this stuff that I thought was going to be true wasn't being reflected in the type of work we were doing or winning from our clients. And when I basically started talking to to Brent, and especially Henry, who was who had just joined as the, the CEO of Founders Forum, which is their amazing events business where they bring together all of the top entrepreneurs from around the world. They thought exactly the same, right? They, they sort of thought about, well, entrepreneurs are inventing what the future of any industry looks like right now. And there isn't anyone that's helping large organizations to think about what they're doing and why and what that means for the large organizations and how to set strategy and grow based on it. And so I remember I went into that meeting with Henry and I... <laughs> sort of forgotten about it and I had to bring my wife saying I, I'm really sorry I forgot to tell you I've got to meet this guy <laughs> and uh, I'll try and finish it quickly so I can get home for dinner and uh, you know sort of two and a half hours later of just really enjoying each other's thoughts and sparring off each other you know I sort of rang her straight afterwards be like I think I'm going to resign tomorrow that was cool wow so sorry just to place that so obviously Kip had introduced you to Henry so this was your first meeting and, and at that point you were talking about potential idea did you go in knowing there'd be a conversation potentially about a business or is that just something that came through you know you went to meet each other and two and a half hours later you were talking about setting up a business which one just so I can place where we go next definitely more the second it was certainly I mean it was it was always a conversation about coming to work for Henry in some capacity it was sort of you know Henry oh, had okay. just taken over a CEO founders forum and was beginning to build all the wonderful other businesses that now sit around it I think he and we have launched 14 since that date, 2013. And so it was always about potentially going to work with him, but, but I hadn't really understood the vision or what it was. Or so I was sort of going in with a, you know, totally like, this is just an interesting conversation as opposed to like, I, I really didn't think it was something I would ever join until, you know, Henry was very eloquent and, um, you know, he is a very inspirational individual about, you know, the things that he was trying to build and thinking about and the change that he wanted to make in the world. And so, Certainly, it wasn't like I went in with a pitch. And in fact, the, the, I've forgotten about it. But you reminded me, one of my friends who worked in venture capital, I actually did write a pitch to, to take to him about a business that I thought of starting. And I thought that was the best approach is to come in and pitch something hard. And my friend who worked in venture capital was like, just honestly, don't do that. <laughs> it's, your idea is awful. And it'll be really, really bad. Do you, for do you remember what it was? Uh, yes, it was It was for a payments business for small, medium-sized enterprises. It was, you know, and obviously that's, that is a good idea. My version of it was a, was a bad one. And also it was just half thought out. And so, you know, rather than having an interesting intellectual conversation with Henry, I would have had a pitch, which he would have pointed out all the flaws in and then sent me packing. And so, you know, it was, it was very, very good advice from my friend, George Mills, who now runs British Patient Capital Venture Fund. So I should say thank you to him. I forgot about that. 
it's a, actually a really good point, Rob, because I'm going to put myself in 26-year-old Nick's shoes, which is a long, long time ago now, scarily. But I think actually would welcome maybe how how would you tell people to approach those conversations? To your point, drop a pitch is obviously step one. Don't go in pitching. But I, I do wonder, in today's world of social media, and you do see these things where, you know, it's lauded that so-and-so spoke to so-and-so and suddenly got a million investment, 10 million, whatever it was. And I think with our sort of right now type approach to that, it can seem quite tempting at 26 to go, oh, here is someone who, you know, on some level has power, has money. And, and that is obvious from the conversations you'd had prior and kind of almost overplay it. How do you recommend people, I guess, go into these conversations? What I say goal's the wrong word, but if a 26-year-old Rob's listening... And someone said, you know, in fact, 26-year-olds just coming to meet you as Rob for that, for that coffee just to chat. Actually, how would you be telling them that this is the best way to do that? You know, go into those conversations. What's that mindset people should be approaching these conversations with so that they're not, like you say, going in pitching hard, alienating people, but also potentially not going in too soft and just having a nice coffee and talking about the weather? Well, um, so obviously I get a lot of people come and interview and yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's sort of the same thing because ultimately an interview one a more formal setting of the same thing. Yeah. It is a meeting in which two of you are trying to get to know each other pretty quickly and work out if there's some, you know, you want to spend potentially years working together. So it's a very intense version of the same thing. It's like, you know, if you're meeting someone in some way powerful or successful that you want to meet, it is, it is a, an informal interview. And, but the most important thing is that I look for in interviews is really how much do I enjoy thinking and working with this person and you know we, we have a very careful set of criteria around we think about how an interview but but it always where people spike in different parts of our different values and really what i'm looking for is like do they learn and engage on an intellectual level or are they trying to desperately get through the interview and so you know really for me anyway it's about how do i engage this person in something that's really intellectual interesting thoughtful about a topic either they're interested in or they might be interested in and that's kind of how if I look through the important relationships that I've made through my career that have gone on to serve me really well that's how they happen so I've mentioned to you before Nick you know there's a, a man called Jonathan Kalashoni who uh, was one of the senior partners of Monitor one of the, the very early employees and built that way up and was part of the sale to Deloitte and um, has been part of Deloitte ever since and he's been and has just retired. He has just um, been utterly fantastic for me as a mentor over the last four or so years. And it was a really random introduction from someone saying, hey, you guys should meet up. And, you know, we went for coffee somewhere just out. And he was obviously late out of like, you know, his head in a million other places. He's doing a favor for a friend to meet this kid he doesn't know or, or, or really want to meet. And, you know, we started the first the first. 10, 15 minutes talking about all the small talk, you know, sort of he was like, oh, you know that person, like something about holidays, you know, if you take a holiday, all this. And I just like suddenly realized this conversation was going to be a total, total useless conversation. And so I just sort of stopped it and said, actually, Jonathan, I'd really like to share like some problems that I'm going through right now with the business I'm running and see, get your take on them. And, you know, he immediately lit up. I was like, oh, it sounds really interesting. And I explained Founders Intelligence, what we're building what we'd built so far, kind of three or four years in, and some of the problems we were having with scaling or things I was seeing. And he just lit up and really enjoyed then the next 40 minutes of the conversation, talking about some of the, the monitor stuff as they were scaling monitor and some of the way he thinks about the same problems that I had. And we just had a really exciting conversation again. And then he was like, no, I've run out of time, but why don't you come and meet me again in a, 
you know, a few weeks or a month and we'll talk a bit more about that particular problem where I've got lots of thoughts on it and it sort of developed from there. So again, it's, there's something about taking control of the conversation to put it onto a topic on which you have an interesting set of thoughts or questions or problems and people like talking. So you don't have to all the talk. You're not trying to impress all the time. You'll sort of listen. And, um, and I think the person who did this best ever was when I first met the CEO of, of ITV, Carolyn McCall, uh, who's become a really important client of mine. And when I first met her, she, she sort of, basically the first thing she did, she listened to me for about five minutes to talk about what we did, you know, in total silence. And then she didn't respond to it or ask any questions. She just said, hey, here's a, here's a problem that I'm working on at the moment. And I was really surprised. And, and I, you know, what she was doing was just seeing how I'd respond to a completely, slightly irrelevant to what I do, actually, question that was important for her at that time. She was really struggling with it. And so to put it to me to see how I would deal with the same question. And again, you know, interesting conversation later. And, you know, she said, great, look, they haven't got any work for you right now, but I'll get in touch with you when I do, because I think you might be interested in a few different areas. And, um, you know, she yeah, messaged me nine months later or something with a sort of, you know, idea on how we might work together. So yeah, it's that intellectual engagement. It was really impressive seeing it the other way. Yeah, I, I love that, Robert. Obviously, you know, the relationship you built with Caroline, you know, I know you had a really successful chat with her the other day for, for Founders Intelligence, which is brilliant. And I guess shows the strength of the relationship you built there. And I think there's some interesting subtleties in what you've said. And it, it reminds me always of the Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I don't know if you have read, but me at 21, I, I certainly needed to do both of those. And actually that you know, key point there of actually talking about things others are interested in will make them interested in you. And I guess there's an interesting element of actually I, being... I, wish, I wouldn't say that exactly. I'd say talk about things that okay. you're, you're really interested in, because that's when you light up and you're at your best. And they'll find something that they're interested in, and then you'll meet in the middle. I think, you know, and I think a lot of this about you know, how you connect with people is about when you're at your best. Like when I'm at my worst, you know, no one wants to talk to me, right? I'm, you know, grumpy and unpleasant. And when I'm at my best, you know, hopefully I'm engaging and interesting and people want to spend more time with me. And, and so thinking about what it is that puts you at your best, and that can be as simple as like where you're meeting and what you're wearing and how you prepared for the meeting or not prepared for the meeting. I'm actually at the best when I don't prepare too much for meetings. And, you know, like down to the point of like, I'm very careful about where I sit in a meeting room. Like I will, every time I move into a meeting room, I will work out which place in the meeting room will make me feel most comfortable. So I, for instance, very rarely sit looking at the windows. I normally sit so that I'm not on one of the long sides of the table because I don't like that feeling of two sides of the table, one side against another. I always want to be the sort of person in the middle. And these sorts of things that you know, happened kind of subtly and then I realized I was doing them and now I sort of do them a bit more actively on like, you know, what's going to make me most comfortable so I can be at my best and be at my, you know, most engaging in this. And I think, you know, everyone at, at every level of, of consultancy can think about that. It's like, you know, you're in what environments are you most comfortable? Do you, you know, do you really shine? And, you know, it's, how do you create those for yourself? I want to come back to that. You've, you've stopped me, though, at the windows. So I'm going to have to ask, why not windows? Why not looking at windows? You know, I don't even know, but uh, the, my team, a couple of people on my team used to take the piss out of me because we would go into these beautiful client meeting rooms where they're like, overlooking some pools, and I'd always just naturally sit at the table with my back to the window, and they always laughed at me that that was the first chair I took. And then I realized, well, yeah, it's because... I just, I want to be focused in the room and I'm quite easily distracted by that visual, you know, whatever's happening outside or, you know, and, and actually, you know, the meeting's about the people. And so you're here to do a job and, 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 you know, that was sort of subconscious and then it's now become conscious that, you know, it's actually around 
what I'm here to do and what I'm here to get out of that meeting and, you know, what is best going to get that job done. And it sounds very cold. It's, <laughs> it isn't that cold. I'm not that sort of analytic about it. It's much more natural, but like, it's, it's such a core consultancy skill that, that at every level, every interaction, whether it's internal, external, it's a sales meeting, it's a coffee with someone who might join the company, you know, you're always, there's always a sort of like, what is this interaction about and how do I get the best out of it? And how do I get, how do I, and that, that best could be a number of different objectives, but like, are you optimizing it for that outcome? And am I behaving in the way that's going to deliver that outcome? All these sorts of things are important. You know, do I go with high energy, low energy? Do I sit and listen and not say very much? Or do I, you know, actually interject a lot in this conversation? It's, it's important to think about what it is you're trying to deliver. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, talks more to empathy than uh, automation, I guess, Rob, because a lot of it is that, you know, understanding. And there's an interesting part of what you've said there actually around that authenticity of being yourself, you know, what you were saying, pick the cafe, pick the clothes, and I'm paraphrasing, but you show up as you. And I'm interested as well, because there was a, a second part of what you talked about of almost a being humble. And, and again, I'm, I'm thinking back to 26 year old Nick. So 26 year old Rob might have been in a, a much better place. But I think sometimes they particularly as consultants, you can you can want to prove yourself. I know I did when I, you know, my last startup was very much you know, something to do with that. But actually with people like you were saying with Henry or with um, Jonathan, being humble enough to be able to say, actually, I don't know everything and not feel like you have to show how good you are. Like that, that feels like quite an important point, however subtle coming through what you're saying. But I'd be interested to get your take on that. It's really important. Yeah. And it's really hard to do. And I still don't do it well half the time. But being reflective on it is really important and catching yourself when you're like, you know, why am I trying to prove to this person that I'm good and worth talking to, you know, because you're always better when you are in that confidence mode and you're kind of flow mode when you're confident and being yourself and your best self. And, and it's something that, um, again, another really important person on my journey, a lady called Orna Nichiona, who um, became our chairman about three years ago. And she, she gave me this really good feedback of like, look, Rob, you're, you know, you're, you're doing really well and, you know, you're, you're good in these conversations, but you can tell still that you're not like a peer with some of the people you're talking to because you've got this like energy of like showing how clever and thoughtful and, you know, you're you, like, and it's really subtle. And you're like, you, I can't explain it to you, but it's like a, a very subtle sort of your keenness to interject, to show, to to prove and she's like if you look at the sort of really accomplished people and the people who sort of get in a room and they work out you know who's at their level of you know whatever like it's, it's how people naturally operate i think it's just a, it's a human nature thing and you know always very like calm almost and they don't need to prove themselves to anybody and and looking at sort of how they do that and how they act and i think it is one thing i've always actually done in my career is sort of you know like the things you can learn most are from looking at people who you think are doing things really well and seeing how they're doing things and look at people who you don't understand how they're so successful and everyone does that right you look at some people in your organization or another organization you're like how are you so senior like you know like and and then think like well actually how are they like what what you know they obviously don't fit my model otherwise you know i would i would understand that naturally and you know, but actually, what do they do? What's made them really successful that I don't do or don't understand? You know, and how can I learn the most from their completely different style that that doesn't doesn't work for me? So a, a bit of that, like actually looking at sort of some of the people who do come in and just look super confident in a room and don't need to impress anybody. And like, what is it that they do that's different? Just because I think it's such a good point that you flagged and that feedback from Orna. Actually, 
How did you learn that? And maybe you'll tell me you Orna said you never learned it, or maybe I'm, I'd be interested how you learned that. And I think particularly for our listeners, where obviously you were, let's say, the managing partner, founding partner. So to an extent, there would be an expectation that you would be a certain way. I'm thinking particularly for our listeners where they're climbing those grades. How did you find you balance that or advise your team to balance that so that they seem senior and confident without seeming aloof? And how did you, how did you, or how do you? Arrogance, aloofness, switch people off immediately. And that's not it. You know, it's not, you're not trying to be arrogant. You're just trying to, it comes back to exactly the thing I talked about earlier on. It's like, what makes you feel confident and secure? It's that security, I think. And a lot of people, you know, if you're, if you're feeling insecure in your environment or in what you're talking about or something else, then, you, you know, every other human picks up on it because that's human nature. And so it's actually sort of, that's probably the best way to look at it. It's like, who looks secure in this environment in which we're in? And you put that very senior person who looks very secure in that environment into a completely different one, right? You know, they go and you, know, you put, put them in some other environment, which they're not, they're not comfortable in. And suddenly they'll look very different and, and give up a very different energy in the room. And, and it's more, and you don't learn it, right? It's not like a, you know, framework you can go and read. It's about being aware of it. That's it. Like, as soon as you're aware of it, like, when am I feeling secure? And when am I feeling insecure? And how do those environments differ? And how do I maximize the number of secure environments and conversations I have and minimize the others? You know, that's, that's really what you're trying to do. And over time, those environments change as you, you feel comfortable and, and you push yourself in, yeah, that's it. I, I think, you know, through working with Brent and Henry and, and, and many others, I sort of ended up in lots of ludicrous situations where I was extremely insecure and work out that actually they don't go horribly wrong. And, you know, people don't think I'm a horrible imposter who shouldn't be there. And, and you know, and over time that the number of places of security increase. And, you know, I think it's something that we should all think about. And like it's it's sort of obviously easier as a kind of privileged white male to do that. And I think it's very important that we all think also about like all the people who bring very different experiences and backgrounds into an environment and what makes them feel secure. And are we having conversations around around that? And so and I think being more aware of that, the importance of that feeling in performing well is something that, you know, I'm certainly trying to do on my behalf, but also, you know, have through conversation with others on, you know, how do I get the best out of each individual in the team or, or the client or, you know, anyone we're interacting with or the founder that we're talking to, you know, all these things really matter. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting point, actually, not just for mentorship, which obviously is what brought us there. But I, I guess that holds true with career relationships, sort of life in general, to your point, getting really mindful of what puts you in, I guess, that flow state, and what doesn't, because I think, at its heart of most problems is exactly that, isn't it? Of If you're not in your an environment that lights you up and gets the best from you and, and you feel really passionate and excited, but you're never going to be ultimately happy. And whether that's mentoring, whether that's career, I guess, would, would you agree? Is that sort of how you know you approach it and how you guide others to? Or is, is that too too overly simple? No, no, no. It's uh, spot on. It's, you know, it's... And, as ever, you say something and it's really interesting to hear how you then pick up on it and, and what that means to you. And, you know, you use the word happy there. And like, I think that's really important, like working out what makes you happy and when you're happiest and, you know, how to create that as an environment. Again, it's the same, it's the same concept, but just put into your words of, of how Nick operates. Very true, Rob. Something on the mentorship and, and stop me if this is sort of, I guess, not a productive question, but I, to that point around where mentorship because I'm a massive believer in mentorship I've had some amazing mentors I think again the internet has made mentorship this kind of 
everyone must have a mentor and people sometimes rush to have mentors. And I'm interested to get your take. You mentioned like the example where you linked it to a job interview. And I think it's a good example. It's kind of like dating, isn't it? And actually, you're obviously very good at making relationships. You've met and made some great mentor relationships. And it sounds like to an extent, Rob, you've been quite mindful in those. Obviously, it's about being your best self and seeing if they accept you. But I imagine there's been times where you know, you've been thinking, is this the right fit for me? And I'd, I'd love to get your take for anyone listening, because to the point I said at the start around, you're told get a mentor to succeed. It can feel like you just got to latch on to someone. And I'm really interested, how how do you get that feeling of whether that relationship is a one that you want to pursue? Or when someone says to you, I'm trying to find a mentor, how, how do you counsel them to actually find someone where there is that fit and not simply latch on to someone because of their title or because what they've done before? Yeah, so for me, I've never looked for a mentor. I've never gone out and thought, I need a mentor, how do I find one? These relationships have all evolved organically and they've all been mutual. So Jonathan was really excited. He really enjoyed the conversation. He had lots of, it's given him, I think, I hope, a lot of pleasure from working on some of the intellectual problems that I have had in building the company and he's a great consultant a brilliant consultant and that's what brilliant consultants do right they enjoy other people's problems and they enjoy the the work the intellectual work of solving them creating them into sort of structured puzzles that you can solve and then solving them together and then less so than the actual implementation which you know as a mentor you don't have to do and so that's what I was looking for is is well, I wasn't looking for a mentor. I, was looking, I had an interesting conversation with him. It was clear that it was mutually interesting. And so we had more of them. And suddenly it was like, oh, you're sort of like a mentor. Would you? <laughs> so we never formalized it. But, you know, I've since called him my mentor and continue to. And, like, you know, I think that's true with 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 many others. But I think that's what you're looking for where, like, because if it's, if it's not a mutual thing, then it becomes a very transactional you know doing a favor and they're like, okay fine you know and they don't engage in the same way and and that you know might be great right and so i think thinking about what sort of mentor you might want or what sort of conversation you want i suppose and you know your mentor might be someone more junior than you or might be someone in a different industry like i don't think the sort of title is completely irrelevant and i guess you know maybe easy to say given i actually had some with very big titles so <laughs> but but i I don't think it's because of their titles. And I think there's also, you know, there's obviously a difference between a mentor and a coach, right? A mentor is someone who's sort of been there and done it a bit and can tell you a bit about how they did it and then solve the problem with you as opposed to a coach who's doing it from a purely intellectual point of view. And I've not gone down the coaching route personally. So I completely agree with your, I guess, overview there, Rob. And I think it comes back to, you know, the theme that you've you've highlighted through this this sort of section of have interesting conversations with interesting people. And if you find it mutually interesting, you'll you'll keep talking. And I think in that way, like I said, it's, it's a relationship like any other. And actually the the mentor title, while it's a box to put a relationship in, is sometimes a misnomer because to your point, and actually you don't, no one has a sign over their head saying mentor or my personal view is if I see someone where they do say that's probably a red flag. You know, it's much more like you say, it's a conversation. It's someone that you get to know. And actually like, like you, there will be people who are more senior people, you know, peer mentors, peers that you you bounce ideas off, and and likewise people who are more junior to you who will tell you why and how you're doing it wrong, and probably blind spots you you've got as well. And I'm interested the other way, you know, and the, the answer to this might be very short of just everything you've said, but 
I suspect given where you are now, you know, obviously very successful running a, a consulting firm, I'm sure you get a lot of people wanting you to be their mentor. And I'd just be really interested kind of how you find that and, and almost if you've spoken to any of your your senior mentors, what advice you give to those who are in your shoes, who are inundated with emails or just frankly have too many people wanting their time than they can give to? I think there's sort of two separate things you can do as a leader. You can like really, firstly, we're all running teams and our first priority has to be the teams, the people who've you know devoted their this portion of their career to working in your company and that's you know a big decision they've made and it's our like definitely for me it's my first kind of priority and anything that the energy that I have needs to go there first and then the the other things you can do for people is is mentoring them in a sense of again it's actually not a word I use with anybody I don't think I'm anybody's mentor they might use it for me I'm not sure but you know it's like can you help them solve problems they're they're having and so where I spend more time, meet people more regularly, it's where, you know, actually I think I've got something, an experience that's actually going to be useful to them, not just because I like them as an individual or, you know, they want a mentor and I'm someone who can mentor them. It's much more about, you know, the way that they've expressed the problem that they're going through or the thing they're trying to achieve is something that I feel like I've got a point of view on that is interesting. And then it's also interesting for me to explore because it helps you know, for me to talk about stuff because it helps crystallize in your mind the sort of thoughts that maybe were a bit looser before. And then you turn to someone and you're like, oh, that's wrong, actually. I'm going to say that again in a better way, you know, and it does help hugely. And so, yeah, I suppose all of them feel like mutual relationships. There's not a single person I feel like I'm doing it as a favor to someone. It's, it's you know, they're doing me equally the favor about being open about their their issues. And then the third is as an advocate, right? And I think it's not a word we use enough of like, you know, who who deserves us as advocates and how do we advocate effectively for people who do deserve that kind of backing in their career. And I think that's another relationship that I think not enough senior people think actively about what they want to, who are the people in the organization who, who need advocacy and deserve advocacy and how do you, how do you do that for them effectively? I've not come across or I've not had someone explain that last point. So I'd be interested, how does that come to life for you? What, what is that advocacy? Is is that sort of from a DNI perspective? Is it something else? How can people do that? And what is that area they should be thinking about? So I've benefited massively. Like take Kip, who made the introduction to Brent originally. You know, he was an advocate for me. He decided that he thought I was good and he would go out and proactively make opportunities for me. And I think I've tried to do that for the people in my team who've asked for it, right? Who say, actually, I want to be in venture capital or I want to do this or, you know, this is my career or this is how I want to succeed in the company and like, you know, try, how do you create those opportunities for people? And I think probably the way I've done that over the years is very unthoughtful in that it's like, whoever tells me they want to do something, I always try and make it happen. And it's not a, and that requires the sort of kind of proactive confidence or, uh, you know, the ability to ask that when someone says, you know, someone is willing to, have the sort of take the risk of telling me something and it's a it's not a very inclusive way to do it and so it's actually a conversation I've been having recently with people about actually well how do you be much more proactive about saying well you know maybe there are some people who aren't advocating for themselves and you can help by by being that advocate for them proactively and making a more thoughtful intervention in terms of how you help someone with their career and you know it's something it's sort of early stage thinking that came out of a series of conversations I'm part of something called the Forward Institute which is a 
community of responsible leaders or leaders who, who aim to lead responsibly and, and make positive change in the world. And it's a conversation I had uh, one of their sort of get togethers six weeks ago. Or so. so it's sort of new thinking, a new kind of like work on, on how I might do that really well. But I think it's a important thing to be more thoughtful of about, you know, where is it that you can spend your time and energy and who do you spend your time and energy for? I love it. And if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind doing some of that early thinking here because I'm interested or fascinated really particularly for for my listeners but equally for myself I have a smaller team than yourself and I I can kind of just about man mark everyone but when you get to your size sort of touching 50 or even you know got listeners running firms of 200 300 1000 2000 people actually how you strike that balance because as you highlighted very often you know we're all busy human beings and the person who puts themselves in front of you and says can you help me here and if they you know all the other criteria are met you're inclined to help them actually how in those conversations we've been talking with peers and for yourself how do you proactively do that because innately the people who are not coming to you are likely to be and I'm making huge assumptions here but people who may be more introverted or more nervous about you as the leader and so you know, you can side up to someone's desk and go, what do you want to do and how can I help you? And they'll go, I'm good, Rob. I'm good. Just, yeah, really happy. Bye. Back off, yeah. <laughs> exactly. In those conversations, where are your early thoughts on actually how you foster that? Because I think it's one thing, it's a really admirable thing wanting to do it. It's then a quite a hard thing to foster that. How, sort of, how have your early thoughts on that gone? So it's thinking I want to do. So I'd love to do it with you and with other people who are interested in that topic. But, you know, one of the sort of, progenitor conversations for, for for this is uh, idea or um, realization was actually a friend who no one has ever told her how good she is and she was saying well i was explaining to her my career history and she was saying well i've you know like she's now a very senior individual in her organization but you know she doesn't feel that anyone's ever sort of really told her that <laughs> and that she's she's destined for the top and that and it was just very interesting comparing our experiences. And so maybe the first thing is not telling someone that, where do you want to get to and how do I help? You know, I'm going to be right. Like, that's a bit weird. It's a bit creepy. I think instead of telling people how good you think they are, it's probably a really good starting point of the conversation of, you know, actually people need to hear that in order to build the confidence to at some point then ask you for the help when it's due. So that's probably a starting point, And there's probably about a million other things. There's probably some people who've done some best practice on this and really thought deeply about it who are listening. And I'd love to hear from them if you have. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point, Rob. And I think there's many strands that this could probably go down because part of it's organizational. Part of it also is geographical because a lot of the mentors you talked about and that ecosystem is quite easy in London, or not easy, but is available in London. You, know, you nip down the road to wherever it was for a coffee and then nip back. Obviously, it sounds like your wife forgave you for being two and a half hours late for, for dinner. But actually how you, to your point, give that reinforcement and those, I guess, social opportunities outside of a, you know, somewhere like London, because just there's fewer people like that. And it's fascinating. And yeah, I, I think that's probably all we can say on it, unless there's anything else that's come, you know, anything, I guess, any other interesting areas that for your discussion with the sort of that group originally, anything else that people suggested, because I really like what you say about just giving positive reinforcement, I guess, has that perspective changed your thoughts at all? When you see someone who's doing really well, and you're thinking, I want to help them, does that make you take a double take and almost think, you know, I need to help one proactive person 
or one person who isn't getting enough support for every proactive person? Is it is it kind of like that? I oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, no, it's probably probably too early on that sort of to have a you know. I'm never going to have a policy on, <laughs> but you know, it's more just again. It's a bit like earlier on we we're talking about the most important thing on building sort of confidence and security in in yourself is being aware of when you are and when you're not i think you know it's very important to be aware of what it is that you know how you're using your power influence mentorship connections introductions you know and just being reflective on it and looking you know actually am i using them for everybody am i using them in a way that reinforces some sort of bias or unfairness in society or am i am i not am i doing the best i can to 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 not do that and so Again, awareness is probably the first, <laughs> the first key key part, and then um, we'll see what what builds from there. But the, you know, I think the other thing is, you know, I think the sort of the world works in how people connect with each other and recommendations and introductions, and you know, it just is a part of the world that will never change, and it is one that reinforces social norms as they are today. And so, thinking proactively around you know, actually, you know, how can you begin to introduce those sort of concepts? As you said, like, you know, if I'm going to give an internship to somebody because someone's asked for a favor or a work experience, probably rather than internship, because we wouldn't do that. But like, I don't know, like, you know, do make sure that you have at least, what is it? Like these sorts of things probably aren't talked about enough. And, you know, how do you, um, how do you make sure that you're at least thinking about them? No, completely agree. I think, and maybe one for another podcast, Rob, but I, I think there's, there is a uh, a business or a charity in, in access to work experiences because, to your point, I think a lot of this starts very young and, you know, we, we talk a lot about some types of diversity, but social can be a massive one. And actually, if your mum or dad didn't work in the consulting firm or the bank and get you the intern, you know, the, the work experience that led to that, that's that sort of that cascade, as I say, some sort of charity that opens up doors to places like yours, ours and others where you'd have no access otherwise, I think probably already exists but if it doesn't i think there's a very good charity in there the last question but it, and it just struck me so it's a bit out of place but i'm going to ask it because you you kind of all of this conversation started with the fact you said kip was someone who advocated for you and this might be self-reflection this might be something you've asked him over a beer years later but almost to close that off and for anyone listening who's thinking i want to be advocated for what do i do have you thought or as kip said why he gave you you know why did he introduce you what was it about you and the way you were at ee that made him think yeah this guy's got something i'll I'll put him in touch with my friend i guess all you can ever do is try and perform your best and be at your best in any situation and i guess suppose kip saw that and you know saw someone who was really trying hard to you know it was a difficult and uncertain project and, and six months that i spent working for him and you know i i really tried my hardest to make it the most successful I could. And that always, always wins, wins the support of people. And then, you know, he, it, it led to him saying, well, look, let's have a coffee at the end of it. And, you know, we worked together closely, you know, we were sort of locked in a room for three months doing a, doing a weird auction process. So, you know, we got to know each other very well, but yeah, really just turning up and doing the best job you possibly can, no matter what the situation tends to win people over and they'll want to, repay the favor fantastic and, and yes i think and 
Exactly right. Work hard. I mean, the getting locked in a room for three months might be a, a factor, but not always. You've, you've got to do it in the right context, or that could be misinterpreted. Rob, so I want to take us back to something, and, it, and it, it's only because I had it in my notes, and this is probably quite shameful to admit, but I'd written it down, and I had no other context for it. And you mentioned it earlier. And so I had it as kind of a, I might ask you if it comes up, and it has. So I, I want to ask you about the difference between solving puzzles and, and solving mysteries, because I had in my notes that plus important for consulting. I'm going to hand over to you. Can you explain what that means and, and why it's important for you or for anyone listening? Yeah, so this is the distinction. First, I credit uh, Jonathan Calascioni. I mentioned him earlier on, but he helped me understand. The way he describes it is there's really two parts of any proper consulting project or before project stage of, of any need. And that is, you know, the client or whoever you are talking to has a mystery, right? Has something that they can't define that they want to do, like a difficult issue that they can't see clearly. And the job of normally the person selling the project is to turn that mystery, that really uncertain problem into a puzzle into something that can be solved. So something that can be broken up into logical pieces and then delivered as essentially a scope of work that then lots of people can go away. And there's obviously lots of mysteries within each of that those pieces of the puzzle, but, but ultimately that's the sort of process is you have a really interesting conversation with a client about something they're trying to achieve and don't know how to achieve it. And then you turn that into a, actually here's how you could think about that mystery that makes it something that's achievable and then at that point they've got two options okay you've really helped me here i can actually go and do that myself and probably you know 80 percent of the time that's that's true and so off they go and they've had a really great conversation with you and they're going to bring every problem to you and then 20 percent of the time actually that's something that i can't do myself and maybe your team could help me and i think realizing that difference of the two stages of consulting has been really important actually for my enjoyment and understanding why i enjoy my job is that early in consulting, you're really trained hard on your particular methodology for solving puzzles, right? For solving quite defined problems where, you know, there's a scope and there's a project plan and there's a manager and, you know, and you're, you're going through and you're getting really good and really sharpening those skills. And the, the sort of transition that you go on as you go into senior leadership with consultants and you start selling and you start actually getting into the clients bringing you difficult and essentially to them unsolvable, hopefully, questions challenges they face and sometimes they're emotional and people problems and all these you know like it's, it's sort of ev everything you know and, and to be a really good advisor to someone is they'll bring you all sorts of different problems and you help them turn them into solvable things that maybe yours to solve or maybe somebody else's and that's the bit i really enjoy and that's the bit i realize that the intellectual challenge of that every conversation to sort of pick up on what they're trying to do to turn that around sort of abstract it in a way that makes it into something that's understandable and sometimes to them for the first time and then turn that into then actually what are the steps you then go off to do it. And that's, I just think it's a really important concept that's probably not talked about enough in the two things you have to learn. And it's sort of a, the second bit is the bit that intellectually makes our career a really fun one. Uh, and especially, you know, as you've got really good at solving the puzzles, like making sure that you're getting exposed to enough mysteries. And that's really the the problem you're working on. And I think the way to be really good at it is probably not to obsess too much over honing the puzzle skills after a certain time and instead become a, you know, more rounded, get involved in other things, right? And bring points of view from 
totally different perspectives than people expect and you become much better at that second bit by a diversity of experiences and interests and genuinely being an interesting human who can you know is not bringing the latest consulting framework but bringing something from some poem they read aren't they? I think it's a, it's a great point and and both the last one around that diversity of thought and just thinking differently and actually that puzzles and you know mysteries piece I'd, I'd be intrigued and it's a slight tangent but maybe not too far of a sidestep is you talked about there how part of your journey was having to go from a, a puzzle solver or a junior consultant has, is a puzzle solver. So I'm going to assume you left PwC as a puzzle solver. And in building your business, you, you had to learn to solve these mysteries and found you really enjoyed it. I'd be fascinated on that journey of those sort of last eight or so years. Have there been any other of those really big inflection points where you've realized or someone has sort of told you you need to change that approach. Because I think that's something, when I look at certain people in consulting, they can get locked at a level because they, I don't know, that it, like, you know, the old adage, what got you here won't get you there. Has there been anything else like that for you? And if so, you know, what was it? Oh, gosh, there have probably been lots. So one, I remember very well, one of the, the most important inflection point in our company was when we wrote down our company values. And... Actually, I talked earlier on about people who work for you being potentially great mentors or a, a brilliant individual called Ria Babari, who now runs um, Framework, which is a wonderful tech startup that's sort of bringing MBA to, to anybody. So Google it. But anyway, she she uh, worked for us and she was always saying that we should think about what our values are as a company. And I think I hadn't really, I sort of been like, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe one that we're really busy, you know, you know how busy we are. And we eventually did it. And I think values get a really bad press because they're mostly badly done and not used and not unique and we went on a really rigorous process to think about well actually what are the things that make our company unique what are the behaviors that make our company unique what are the things that our our clients really value in the company and how do we articulate those in five ways of behaving and we call them the values but perhaps that's not very it's not maybe we the right term and but it was so important for us because to that point, for the first probably three, four years of the company, we couldn't articulate very clearly on what it is that makes someone successful at founders intelligence. And doing that said, well, actually, it's these behaviors and they're on the website and, and anyone can go and look at them. And that's what we look for in interview. It's what we talk about in project feedback with each other. You know, were you driven by impact? Were you rigorous in uncertainty? Were you authentically curious? Were you entrepreneurial? And were you in it together with the rest of the team as our five values? And each of those is sort of well-defined and thought through. And we talk about them at every away day. And it's, it really unlocked the business for us, you know, the growth of the business, because we could for the first time articulate what really is the essence of our company that's different from anybody else's. And yeah, it's, I just think for everybody, that's a important thing. And someone actually asked me last week what my personal values were. If my company values are so important, what are your personal values? I thought that's such an interesting, no one's ever asked me to articulate those before. So anyway, that's a, that's a, that's a project that I'm going to go on over the next few weeks to uh, see if I can write those down. It's an interesting challenge to see, can you actually articulate something that feels authentic and inspiring to yourself that can keep you honest? You'll have to let me know how that goes because, yeah, I, I feel we may share similar challenges with these sort of processes. And, and we had the same journey. Yeah, we were always, or I was always too busy to talk about them. And, and like you say, you know, one of the one of our team members, Dan, actually really f- focused on this should be something we do. And actually, it was an amazing process. And, and like you say, has really helped as an organization us come together on on what is different, what makes us distinct, and 
actually how do you build that into everything you do because until you illuminate that you yeah you don't know and it, it's all right when there's probably you plus one but when there's you know you plus more than that just what rob kind of thinks or nick or someone else stops holding true yeah and crucially they just have to be things that other companies wouldn't write down you know they have to be unique to your company you know otherwise everyone's like ah yeah everyone values honesty or something or you know these useless words that sort of um that like anyone could recognize in any company. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. Well, and, and it's something I remember always one of my first ever is guest number two, Don Morehouse, always talked about that of going into offices and seeing values above the copy, you know, the photocopier, where like you say, no one really paid attention to them. They were just stuck on a nice poster. And actually, as you've highlighted there, living them and really embedding them in your culture is is what enables them to live otherwise they do just become honesty integrity and, and whatever the other three are that everyone has <laughs> just for us it just means we can recognize people who are going to succeed in our company and we're going to be the right company for them where we see these traits and behaviors in people and to your point around personal values i mean turning that same question probably to you as an individual as a leader is there anything you've had to or are those is there has there been an inflection point that you found actually you had to focus on or or that when you did focus on dramatically shifted the growth of the company or your enjoyment or the teams, are there any that stand out? Is there something? There's probably not a moment. There's a general slow realization of the importance of losing the sort of the hero complex, the kind of centrality to any narrative that as a sort of someone who is here at the beginning of the company, for a long time, every problem was my problem to solve and every sort of, Every time there was any feedback or something to do, I'd always have to be involved, and that's so. And it's, it's you know, it's just the art of delegation, right? It's, it's, but it's not really that. Maybe that's that's too flippant. Like it's the art of empowerment, of of not having to be involved in things. Of you know, actually, the story is much bigger than any individual, and and having the the confidence to step back from it, I think, is like a really important slow process that I'm still going on, and that everyone goes on, right? It's a sort of uh, and I think there's a brilliant book um, called A Fortunate Man by John Berger, who's an art critic. And um, he did a deep study, and it's a sort of photo and written study of um country doctor in the black country in the 70s. And it's just it, that book for me really helped. Like, it was so brilliant to read this sort of study of an individual and, and how they changed through their career. Although it was only looking at three months snapshot of their, their life. But um you know, I found that, that that idea of sort of moving from like, you know, as a young doctor, he wanted to only really work on like, you know, where he could be the hero, come in and save, you know, traumatic injury and like, you know, with action, action, action to actually enjoying a much slower process of watching patients over a long period of time and things that, you know, building deep relationships and thinking about like, actually, is this person healthy without me intervening? You know, is, is we're much more satisfied in that later on in his career. And I just, I found that a really helpful thought on you know my own behaviors and the own way we're building our company and um yeah that's been so important just the the brilliance of everybody in the company it just astounds me regularly so um it's been important i love that rob and i, I always like when it's a left field reference in terms of books and, and you know it's funny how some of those things can have such Im- big impact on on you and a just and you mentioned it's a journey and you're still going on it so there may not be a a short answer to this but at some point you had to make a conscious decision to to start to let go and I do think you know particularly in our industry I see a lot of people who 
there becomes a tipping point where to continue growing, you've got to do that or you limit your growth because you have to be involved in everything. How did you get yourself in the early days comfortable with that? Because if you've been the everything for everything for so long, or however long that is, it's scary doing it, you know, letting go and giving people the reins. How did you get yourself comfortable? Or was it just that a fortunate man made you sort of mindset shift and you thought, right, let's let's try it? No, no, the... I think that book helped me realize what had been going on in the same way that the sort of puzzle to mystery way of thinking from Jonathan made me realize what, what was happening. Yeah, sort of these, these concepts help you back justify or explain what's been going on already. And the process, I, I genuinely can't point to a moment or a thing or something that's happened. It's a, it's something that it's the advice I got, you know, like two days into starting the company probably is like, don't try and do everything. And they're like, yeah, obviously I've got to delegate and hire people who are better than you and empower them. And it's like, yes, of course I'm doing that. And you're not, you know, and, and, and it's the subtle behaviors. It's the sort of, you know, it's the thinking you're being helpful and actually you're being the opposite. It's the sort of, and so I think you can only learn by getting it wrong a whole bunch of times and for a long time and, you know, and having the people who give you the, the good feedback and the honest feedback to, to slowly learn how not to do it. And then seeing the results when you don't, right? When, you know, the, the sort of the unbelievable growth and change in our company over the last three, four years, you know, what we, what we've created, you know, entirely because I've let go a bit more, empowered more and, and other people have way surpassed anything I'd ever come up with in any of these areas, including yourselves in marketing, right? And, you know, I, th- I think it's really refreshing, Robin. I, I think not necessarily from any of the conversations I've had, but again, I, I think there is a, a leaning towards the five things to do X, which is, like you said, delegate. If, if it was easy, as easy as delegate more and, and hire great people, you know, everyone would do it. I think there's, I'll have to find his name, but there's a great podcast quote I remember, and I, I'll find it for you because I think you'd love the interview, but the guy said, if, if it was as simple as infomercials make it, we'd all have six packs and be millionaires. And I'm neither of those at the moment. Um, probably need more, a bit more work before I'm getting anywhere near a six pack at the moment. But I think it's a really refreshing point of, like you say, that journey you go on. You know, I know, you know failing in my first startup, which sounds much more glamorous than it was, was a real learning for me and actually taught me humility, which as a 25-year-old consultant, I didn't have anywhere near enough of. But actually going through that journey teaches you something. And you know that's where you've just got to be cognizant of what is happening and, and making the most of it. And I think your point around just none of this is as easy as it sounds on the tin is really powerful. I think, Rob, turning to our last questions for today, and, and these are ones that I ask all my guests and so interested in in your take. You've you've started actually on one of them, but I'll I'll ask it anyway and let you take it where you want, which is first one's about books. And I'm just interested, you know, what is the book or the the books that you find yourself referring back to or giving away most and and why is it? So this is a really easy one because there's one book that I have traveled with everywhere I've gone for five years and I've given probably 20, 30 copies away, which is Wendell Berry, The Piece of Wild Things. And it's a poetry book. He's a American farmer and poet, and it is it's just a collection of his poems. And it is whenever I'm stressed and stress all comes from the inability to see the bigger picture, I think. And you know, many, many mental health problems do or beyond stress. Like the, and I find that really helpful for 
sort of rebasing and thinking about, you know, the wider world and, you know, you like reading it, you feel like you're in nature and you can understand sort of how your problems fit in with the wider world. And, you know, I give it to anyone I know is stressed essentially and in consulting often people are, and, you know, it's just important to keep a perspective on everything. And, and I found this book personally very helpful and maybe everyone else is throwing it in the bin and it doesn't speak to anyone else, but that's fine. I, I love it. And I also think there's quite a nice element in there of, you're giving away a book to help people with, you know, not always, but help people with stress while it's actually a book that is not about stress management or time management. Because I think, you know, sometimes that's the go-to, isn't it? Oh, you're stressed. Here's a time management book. I, well, maybe. I think, I think, and one of the, I think consulting is a brilliant career if you enjoy it, right? And that's, you have to make it enjoyable by making it intellectual and interesting and funny. And, you know, if you make it stressful and you think about all the frameworks you don't know and all the, stuff people write that you have to read and I don't know like it's dreadful I I wouldn't I wouldn't enjoy that and so you know I don't read many business books they have to be recommended by a lot of people before I pick one up and otherwise I'll just you know flick through the summary but the you know the it's being a really good consultant is about being a really interesting human and having clients who think you're an interesting human and so bring you interesting problems and you know if you look at it like that it's brilliant it's brilliant no, I think it's a great way to look at it and, and is very true. And, and I think too often we we overcomplicate to our detriment as a group, if you call consultants. And like you say, think it has to be something it isn't. And I, I've got to ask, like, where did the book come from? Because of all the recommendations I've had, I think that wins for probably the most left field. And I just love to know, yeah, where did you pick that, that poetry book up from? I bought it for my wife for Mother's Day in our second when our child was two and I know that because she's never read it and it still has the little note I wrote in the front saying something like I hope you enjoy the piece of our wild things or something referring to our children and I thought it was very funny and I picked it up completely at random off the shelf because it had a title and I you know I put two and two together like, ah a piece of wild things that sounds exactly like our children I will uh, I'll buy this for her <laughs> and uh yeah I gave it to her and then I picked it up and was like oh that's interesting yeah wasn't expecting that and uh yeah it's been by my bedside ever since i, lo- I love it it's uh, and i think you know, just reinforces some of the things we've talked about around you know the serendipity in, in some of these encounters and i think then rob last question you sort of started touching on some of your advice just then but i mean the whole conversation has been about advice for consultants so this could be your chance to recap it could be your chance to sort of really reinforce any of those points or, or anything new that maybe we've not talked about and and this question is quite simply, you've got three people in front of you. One is a an analyst just starting out. One, four to five years in, I'd, I, I always get this modelled, but say manager, they're kind of, they've got some options, but they're not that senior or not senior enough to, to go and do certain things. And then one who is approaching partner. So they're on the track, they're closing in, and, and they've got that decision point of, do I do it? Do I do something else? And, and the question is quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each of those? Well, I think one piece of advice I give to all of them is, you know, keep looking at what you really enjoy about the job. And there are lots of bits of consulting that people don't enjoy. And there are, you know, there are hard bits, obviously, like there are for all of us. And, you know, it is a slightly crazy thing to try and do at times of, you know, take the hardest problem someone has, tell them you can solve it for them, and then give yourself a fixed amount of time and money to solve it. And if it was easy, they'd do it themselves. And so you basically take all the most stressful stuff you possibly could and then, you know, set yourself up to have to deliver it back to them in three months time or something. So, 
you're thinking at each stage. So when you're starting out, like, what do you see that's really fun as well as the bits that are hard? Like, do you really enjoy the process of abstracting a problem and taking it from something real to something abstract and then back down into some real solution that someone can implement? And then sort of five years time, you know, when you're thinking about, like, is this the sort of long-term career for you? I think it's that point around, do you enjoy solving other people's problems and, and not in a consulting way i mean in a in a conversational way like actually if you enjoy having a conversation in the pub with someone and you're the one who's always sort of saying well actually have you thought about it like this and you know these are the sort of things like that's what i i, I realized i love that like i i love bringing energy and clarity to other people's problems and you know and i do sort of a lot of conversations and i set a few boards now and they really excite me because it's it's fun and and I think, you know, you might not yet at that stage be doing that with some of the clients. So, you know, hopefully you are, but like that's the sort of journey to then go into the senior management side of consulting when you're actually the sort of real advisor to a client and they're bringing you stuff that, you know, maybe is uncomfortable for them to share or, you know, big problems they have. And you sort of recognize at that point, is that somewhere I want to go by by understanding if that's something you enjoy in the rest of your life? <laughs> um and then a piece of advice I found most useful when I was sort of, you know, maybe in that junior partner kind of phase of growth was really about like, just, just make yourself interesting, go and be an interesting human and good things will happen because people want to talk to you. And I think that like, you know, I don't know what it's like at, at, at large organizations, but I, I hear it's, it's a stressful process trying to make partner and you're getting close and we, you know, and, and I'm sure it is. And, and I think the, the sort of, if you're going to be really good for a long time, you know, you have to think about sort of how you stay rounded and how you develop interests outside of work, because they'll probably fuel the the best bits of your work in, in time. And the reasons why clients find you more interesting than someone else who's highly technically trained in how to be the perfect consultant. You know, it's like, I don't think, in fact, it's the number one piece of feedback we get from our clients is that we're really authentic, nice, interesting people. And, it's sort of annoying because like that's hard to say in any marketing because <laughs> you, you sound awful. Yeah. But, but as it soon is, as you it say is, that, it's what comes uh... back. We do these, you know, after every project, we do an MPS thing and a, a 15 minute conversation. And it's what we always get. It's like, we love your people and we love talking to them. And, you know, it makes me want to find ways to work with them more. And that's what you want to hear as well as, you know, like, that we're technically quite good at our jobs and can deliver high quality work. But yeah, that's the advice I found most useful. I think some great pieces in there, Rob. And I think, you know, that that enjoyment theme and just that richness of life is more than simply learning a framework and, and repeating said framework. And actually, like you say, make yourself interesting. I think it's a really nice, nice point and, and probably a great place for us to finish, Rob. So thank you very much for this. I've really enjoyed catching up. Obviously, you know, we've, we've got to know each other over the last few months, but it's always nice to sit down completely outside of work and, you know, just chat about some topics and some really interesting ones that I, I haven't spoken to many guests about. So thank you for that. And I, I guess the very last, not really a question, but as much of if anyone listened to this and they want to find out more about yourself, founders intelligence, maybe they want to apply to join or, or speak to you about potential problems they've got, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so Rob at foundersintelligence.com, get in touch and yeah, definitely come and join us. You know, we are growing fast and especially with the news this week, we're going to be growing even faster. So it's, you know, wonderful place to work and uh, yeah I'd love to hear from people 
Amazing, Rob. Well, thank you very much for that. I will put a link to, I'll put your email address. I'll also put links to the um, the books and various things you mentioned in the podcast in the show notes. So anyone who's listening can go and find them there. But no, thank you very much for this, Rob. Really enjoyed it. And all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Oh, thank you for having me, Nick. It's a real pleasure to talk to you as always. Cheers, Rob. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.